Hi, I'm Ellen Lee Beter. I'm Jake Morecambe. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SER, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Jake, you know how cane toads are considered a pest here in Australia? Yeah, and you, do you want to know how I know that? How? <laughs> because of that Simpsons episode where they have to come over to Australia because Bart made that prank phone call and then as they're flying out of the embassy in a helicopter because Bart made all the Australian people angry, they look down and they see thousands of cane toads eating all the crops. And I'm pretty sure it was Bart that actually brought the cane toad in. I think so, yeah. <laughs> well, they were right about the cane toads. It is a problem, especially for a small native marsupial species in Australia that's dying out because they're eating cane toads. Gross. <laughs> and wait, aren't, they're poisonous, right? Yes, they are poisonous, especially if you eat them. But these researchers have come up with a new solution. Cane toad sausages. Oh my God, that sounds kind of <laughs> disgusting. Like, does it actually have cane toad in it? Oh, you just have to wait and find out, Jake. Throw that on the barbie. <laughs> but up first, we're in the era of innovation, or so Malcolm Turnbull keeps telling us. And a big part of that is our modes of transport. The light rail is kind of the transport buzzword of the year, and they're popping up all over the globe. But one particular light rail development has got a lot of people pretty ticked off. Where is it? It's the one under construction in Randwick Council in Sydney. And the main reason people are pissed is because the New South Wales state government kind of backflipped on where it will actually go, meaning they moved it from one side of the road to the other. And that may not seem like a big deal, but this isn't your typical road. sort of chained to a tree for about four hours that evening and then the police moved us on because basically they um, erected a barrier around us and then said that we were in a construction site so we didn't have the right certificate to be in the construction site we were effectively trespassing and if we didn't remove ourselves from the area we would be arrested. This is Louise Borignac, and she was protesting the trees being cut down in Randwick, a suburb in Sydney, to make way for the new city and southeast light rail. She lives on the corner of Allison Road in Kensington, which, if you've ever heard of the Randwick Racecourse, it's about five minutes down the road from there. Louise's house is also very close to where these trees were, and she says since they've been cut down, it's made a huge change. It was beautiful and green, and what was actually really nice is that it was so... It was just much darker there. You'd always see beautiful birds in the trees and possums. It was a pleasure to walk under, to ride your bike under. It just had multiple amenity benefits and it just provided a little bit of oasis, a little bit of green to look at in in a city that has a lot of um, hard structures and dark structures. So, so what yeah. does it look like now? It's just very light and there's just a lot of um, wood chips just left there. So <laughs> the remains of a, a beautiful living, living creature. The plan for the Randwick light rail is that it will fork when it gets to Allison Road. So one way, it'll stretch up towards the university, past the Randwick racecourse and up towards the hospital. And then the other way, it will continue along Anzac Parade, along towards Kingsford. 
this line will also connect up towards the CBD. It's a welcome plan in theory because it could potentially reduce congestion on the roads around the city and make life a lot easier getting to and from places. But Louise is more worried about what's being lost due to the light rail. Um, 1,277 trees are going to be removed from the Randwick local government area for the light rail project and about 871 of those trees are kind of classified as as significant. So a lot of them along Anzac Parade were planted to commemorate the Anzacs and they're significant because they have an extensive canopy so it's shading and heat mitigation, habitat for biodiversity for bats and birds, um, for various insects and also helping with stormwater retention and you know, keeping the soil in good condition as well. Even the name light rail sounds like something more eco-friendly. It sounds lighter, smoother and better for the environment than normal trains. So culling some trees and putting an eco-friendly mode of transport that's needed in a growing city can't really do that much harm, right? Or can it? Some work that was actually done by um, the institute where I work was looking at tree canopy cover in a lot of urban local government areas in Sydney and Randwick only had the Randwick local government area only had 14% tree canopy cover which is actually the third worst performing in terms of tree canopy cover in all of the 39 urban local government areas in Sydney so actually 46% of Randwick local government area is sort of these hard, dark surfaces. So the removal of these trees is going to make the area and the community that lives in these areas much more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change now and into the future. So it's it's no small thing. It's not only an environmental health issue, but a money one too. This kind of um, extreme heat in Australia actually costs the Australian economy $6.2 billion a year. That's in sort of people becoming sick, um, not attending work. So it's not a small matter and we really need to be retaining as many urban street trees as possible because that provides the only cost-effective way to reduce these heat impacts that we're going to see more and more of across Sydney and across Australia in the future. And speaking of costs... The whole principle of light rail, it's cheaper to build, should be cheaper to build, but this south uh, city and southeast light rail is one of the most expensive light rail projects in the world. $2.1 billion for 13 kilometres of line. That's absurdly expensive. That's Colin Schroeder, co-convener of Ecotransit. Now, Ecotransit is a public advocacy group for public and active transport. Colin and Ecotransit are all for the light rail as a sustainable mode of transport, but only if it's done the right way, which Colin says isn't happening. The reason they're destroying trees is that they're running the light rail alongside the busway. Now, the busway was the old original tram tracks. Trams ran down those corridors up to the early 60s under the trees. There was no problem. The trees weren't as big then, but there was no problem. The only reason they're destroying trees now is because, for some reason, they won't move the buses, what buses will be left running those routes, onto Anzac Parade and put the trams back where they used to run. They're putting the trams alongside the the busway. There was no need for that. Why have a busway as well as the, the light rail? They could have easily put the light rail back where the trams used to run and shifted what bus routes were left onto Anzac Parade. Louise Boronyak from earlier says this might have something to do with the Randwick race course. Yeah, the Australian Turf Club 
want to put in an eight-storey hotel that has an entertainment complex and bars and various other other things at that site. And it's classified as a state-significant development and that's essentially why the light rail route was amended from that south end to the other end. And there's six lanes of traffic that go along Anzac Parade, why couldn't we have taken two of those lanes out to, to put the light rail there if if we actually are just trying to, attempting to displace car use along that area in the eastern suburbs? In terms of practicality, the actual size of the light rail trams is also an issue. Back to Colin. They've gone to 67 metre long trams, the longest trams in the world. And the only reason they've done that is that RMS won't give the light rail traffic light priority. So you can only run trams every four minutes, which means to get the capacity you require, you have to have these ultra-long trams. Now, when when they're running down George Street, it's going to be a big obstruction to the movement of people across George Street, even though in the pedestrian plaza section. It just doesn't make sense. We should have a tram every two minutes, half the length. And there's also an issue with how the light rail actually operates. Uh, Instead of having overhead power collection, you have a third rail, which is activated when the tram's over it. So there's no chance of people getting electrocuted, but uh, so the activation's when the tram's actually sitting over the rail. It has been used overseas, but it's a much more expensive system to use. It'd be much better to go for the standard overhead wire collection. Uh, And even in very historic cities like Dublin, through the centre of Dublin, they've opted for just standard overhead wire because the overhead wire collection now is very simple. It doesn't You don't have big skeins of wire everywhere uh, like you used to with the old systems. It would be a much cheaper option and also uh, probably a more reliable option because, you know, with Sydney's rainfall, we saw what happened last weekend with the rain. What's going to happen to this third rail? How's it going to survive that sort of deluge of water? Why are they using the one on the ground then? Well, the... Th- they think aesthetics looks better not having the overhead wire. But as I said, the overhead wires today are not intrusive. You can just have to go to Adelaide and you can see the, the overhead wires going through Adelaide. It doesn't, it's not offensive. With so much hype and effort poured into this new light rail system, you'd hope as someone who might be using it that it's the best that it can be. For Louise, that's a definite concern, but there's also something else on her mind. What makes me angry is that the community wasn't effectively consulted in the in the decisions of course we you know we need a modern transport system for sydney there's you know obvious traffic congestion but what makes me angry is that basically contradicts the government's own policies so they have this um 2014 metro strategy which is a, a plan for going sydney and one of the goals in it advocates a balanced approach to developing sydney which protects the natural environment um, and improves the livability of sydney but also balances the need for growing infrastructure for a city and i guess I mean, in terms of this case, the state government really overlooked the need to balance the natural environment and the development of the light rail. And so the trees and and the local community and the environment have certainly lost out in this instance. Louise Boronyak, Senior Research Consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. Remember back to our animal special last week, Jake? 
when I found out that female koalas have three vaginas and male koalas have a bifurcated penis. How could I forget that? <laughs> I'm glad that's what you took away from last week's show. I'm actually talking about the rhino story we did, though. We were talking about animal trafficking, as that was the theme for World Environment Day. And I've actually got another one for you this week. But before we get into it, I want you to give me your opinion on what it's all about. Okay, so it's another rhino story. What is it about? What if we brought rhinos from overseas here to Australia to make sure that they don't go extinct? Um, I'd, I'd like to know how, by freight containers. <laughs> you want to know the logistics of it? Yeah. Well, Ray Dearlove is the founder of the Australian Rhino Project, and he's working with the South African government to bring a population of rhinos over here so they don't go extinct from poaching. Our producer, Nina Kopel, spoke to Ray. Last year, there were 1,335 rhinos killed. You say, so what? That's one every three hours. I mean, if it was humans, it would be called genocide. Um, The previous year, 1,215. The previous year, 1,006. So given the fact that a rhino has a gestation period of about 16 months and only drops one calf and is ready again in probably three to four years, you can see that the, the, the breeding cycle is a long cycle. So if you're killing three a day, we talk about a tipping point where a the kill rate exceeds the birth rate. You don't have to be a brain of Britain to understand that this is, you've got some catching up to do if you're losing them at three a day. So we, we, you know, if we can do what we set out to do is to breed them happily, safely, securely, to build up that herd here, just to ensure it's a, that rhinos don't become extinct in the wild. That, I'm strongly of the view that rhinos won't become extinct. They will always be in, in places like zoos or safari parks. It's in the wild, like you and I were talking about before, in terms of seeing a rhino in the wild, like in Kruger and so on. That's the exciting part. From our point of view, if we can have a, an insurance herd here so that when things basically do resolve, and, and please God they do resolve, in terms of sorting out the poaching, that we can re-seed or repopulate those areas with rhinos. And there, there is no, as I understand from people lots smarter than me, there's no issue in terms of reintroducing the animals into the wild. What kind of situation are these rhinos going to be in when they get here? Where will they be living? What will be their new home? Uh, that's a deeper question than you might think it is. The, the, um, one of the reasons we got the support of uh, organisations like Taronga Zoo is that clearly from a conservation point of view to make sure that the rhinos don't become extinct. But secondly, from their point of view, is they wanted some genetic diversity in the, in the rhinos they already have here. So the commitment that I've made to them is that we will provide them with a number of animals which can assist in, in spreading that gene pool. So the, initially they'll be in quarantine at Dubbo out at um, uh, Taronga Western Plains Zoo and that's where the quarantine will take place and then after that the animals will be shipped. Some will stay there to, to do what I've just described and the others will go elsewhere to hopefully do the same thing but essentially to get cracking on building up the breeding herd. So your plan has gotten a lot of tension for obvious reasons. It's a really ambitious one. You've been called audacious and complimented on your plan but there i've read a few you know smaller articles that do criticize the plan saying that by the point where you have to bring rhinos into australia and put them in zoos or to conserve them we've already lost the battle we we've already failed what do you say to that i don't think anyone can ever admit failure i mean the people do say to me um your rhinos will never become extinct and we always qualify that in the wild so I just quote the example, there's the northern white rhino, which is up in Kenya, the, the, the remaining three, which are in Kenya, as I recall. There's three left, Nina. They're all girls. So it's game over. So they will become extinct 
in the next couple of years when those the animals die off. So yeah, it is a real possibility, quite frankly. And you see the number of rhinos that used to have in, inhabit Africa, the same with elephants and so on. It's, um, one should never give up, and I, I never give up. And, and, and I'm, our plan is multifaceted. I mean, the, the initially, they've all got to go through quarantines, and that the only place where there is quarantine is at the zoo. So that's, I mean, that's reality. Now, when people think zoo, they think cages. These are not caged animals. I mean, you know, I, I, Australian zoos are way advanced, more, as much as anyone else in the world. So, so if we're going to fulfill, achieve our number of 80 rhinos over a period of four or five years, whatever that might be, depending on a whole lot of factors like availability, like quarantine and so on, they can't all go into safari parks because they don't have the capacity for those. It's just simple as that they don't. So, and they don't, they don't want them necessarily. You don't want to, play, to go to a place like Western Plains Zoo and to be only there to be rhinos. I'd be happy with that personally, but I don't think that's going to happen. So we've got to have alternatives. And, and from our point of view, you know, there are a number of alternatives right across the country where they could possibly breed safely, happily, and securely. Um, clearly, security is a big issue. You know, I have a number of reasons why I believe that, that Australia is one of the safer places in the planet. But... Um, don't give up the fight. We can't afford to give up the fight. We can't afford to give up the fight. It's such an iconic animal. And it's been on the planet tens of millions of years. And if you if you look at that animal, Nina, it's the closest that you, you're a young lady, the closest you'll see ever to a dinosaur. I mean, dinosaurs are the flavor of the month. It's the closest thing you'll ever see to a dinosaur. Logistically, how do you move an animal as big and as just wild as a rhino? How is this plan going to work? Yeah. Yes, I mean, it's the wild aspect. Um, the, 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 it's, it's essentially, um, and we observed a bit of this last week in South Africa, is that they, they find the rhino, they dart it, so it's sedated, uh, they capture it and they put it in, in, in crates which move the animal to the quarantine facility and then there's a, then they go through the quarantine and it's just normal, but it's also, the, it's a word that I've never heard of before, it's called habituate when the, the rhino becomes used to the environment that it is, and particularly white rhinos are bitchacked fairly easily. Um, the black rhino is a different thing, but we're talking about whites in this particular case. So then once the quarantine facility's requirements have been satisfied, then the process will begin as they shift them to the airport in Joburg, and they'll get on an airplane, and, um, and they will fly to Mascot here in, in Sydney, and then the reverse process is they'll be created to Western Plains Zoo, put in the quarantine facility, make sure they're disease-free, and then happy days. So how close are we to actually getting rhinos on the ground in Australia? Well, the first thing is that there are rhinos on the ground in Australia, really, which a lot of people don't know. Um, there's probably of the order of 50 scattered around Australia, and they're predominantly in safari parks such as Dubbo. Um, so that's the first thing, which is, why is that relevant? It's re- relevant because it shows that they can exist and they can breed and they can do well in this environment. So, um, how close are we? That's, I mean, that, if I knew the answer to that question, you know, I would basically put my feet up at this stage of the game. Um, I'm optimistic that we can get them here by the end of the year. We, you know, we've got the, the biosecurity issues to deal with, with with Canberra. That's ongoing. They've been enormously supportive. And, um, and then there's the South African side, which is um, to ensure that we get the export permits. And we've done everything according to the protocols of both countries because I made that clear from the beginning that we were going to do that. Otherwise, you just run into trouble. I mean, you, you really do run into trouble if you try and short, shortcut these things. So um, I'd like to think by the end of the year, Nina, and, and, and I'll invite you for drinks. 
There have been discussions in South Africa about legalising the rhino horn trade. Do you think a plan like that could ever work? Well, interesting, it's, it is legal in South Africa at the moment, believe it or not, only in South Africa, because that's, but that's just a, a legislative, whatever that word is, uh, glitch. Um, South Africa was going to put forward a proposal to um, legalise trade at CITES, which is in, in September in, in Johannesburg, but two weeks ago they said that they were not going to do it. So, um, look, I, I don't know. I can see both sides of the ar- argument, but... At the end of the day, I just can't see how it'll stop the poaching. I know they're talking about reducing the price and flooding the market and so on. Um, I just don't see how that'll work. So I think we're, we're with the status quo at the, as it is at the moment, and South Africa will reverse that legislation. Um, but from our point of view, you know, I mean, you know that's kind of in, in some ways irrelevant to what we're trying to do. We, we're just trying to get a secure breeding herd as an insurance policy um, away from the action to spread the risk. Ray Dearlove, founder of the Australian Rhino Project, speaking to Nina Copel. How do you feel about it now, Jake? I don't know. I still feel a little bit weird about it. Like, to bring rhinos over, to put them in zoos, doesn't sound like a lot of fun for them, but I guess that's what you'd expect. But also, deep down, I'm kind of thinking it's a better fate to somehow try and save them than let them get poached for their horns. I just feel bad that we might take them out of their homes. What if their babies are left behind? Well, I would hope they wouldn't separate mama and baby rhino. Now on to the weird stuff. What is a cane toad sausage? These particular sausages, as you were saying before, are for marsupial species here in Australia, right? Yep, the native coral population is on the decline because they're eating cane toads. But Jonathan Webb from the University of Technology, Sydney, is looking at a substitute in the form of a sausage. Our producer, Sam King, caught up with Jonathan. Yeah, look, all of our quolls are threatened. So we've, we've lost the eastern quoll from mainland Australia. We think disease might have been involved in that decline. Mm. Um, Northern quolls are now listed as endangered, uh, and eastern quolls have recently declined in Tasmania. So all of the species mm. are in trouble. But what is it about the quoll that makes it important for our biodiversity? I think um, quolls play an important role as predators in ecosystems. So they're our native predator, mm. and they play important functions by regulating prey populations, uh, regulating the behaviour of prey You don't really understand what the effects of predators are in a system until you remove them. And one of the reasons that they're declining, as I understand, is that the the quoll enjoys a nice cane toad uh, for dinner. Though I can't imagine why, as they're pretty poisonous, of course. Why do they eat cane toads? Well, you've got to put it in context. So cane toads are an introduced species, and the toxins that they contain are very different to the toxins found in native frogs. So our predators aren't equipped to deal with those toxins. So when toads were introduced to Queensland and started spreading across northern Australia, quolls that encountered them thought, here's a great frog that I can eat, and they didn't know any different. Mm. Um, The biggest problem for quolls is the first toad they encounter are these giant toads at the invasion front, and they have massive toxin glands that are just full of a cocktail of toxins that causes a very rapid heart, heart attack. So mm. a quoll that just mouths a big toad is going to die. So it doesn't get any opportunity to learn. Um, and that's the biggest problem for quolls. The first toads they encounter kill them, mm. they die, and populations crash 
very quickly. And in fact, we've seen local extinctions of northern quolls across northern Australia. Look, I've read of um, this solution, uh, the cane toad sausage, uh, so that they can kind of wean off cane toads and have a substitute. What, what is this sausage? How does that work? Well, look, the best way to describe it is anyone that's had food poisoning will know exactly how this works. So if you spent the night throwing up after eating, say, a chicken curry, mm. I guarantee you that if I give you that chicken curry in the morning, you're going to feel really repulsed. Mm-hmm. The smell of that food is going to make you feel sick. Been there, definitely. <laughs> and there'll be no way you can eat it, right? Mm. So that's the principle. We call it conditioned taste aversion. So the idea is we give the quolls a toad sausage that smells and tastes like a cane toad. Yeah. We add a chemical to it that makes the quolls quite ill. When they recover from that illness, they then associate the smell of the cane toad with illness. So when they encounter a live toad, they might be inquisitive and go up and sniff that toad and get ready to attack it. But as soon as they get that smell, it kicks in a feedback mechanism that tells them, hey, I made you sick last time, don't eat me. And mm. and we've done some trials at the Territory Wildlife Park and they're very promising. The quolls that have eaten toad sausages have then avoided eating live cane toads. So the idea is we're going to trial deploying toad sausages ahead of the toad invasion front in the Kimberley, where toads are currently invading. And we're going to try and stop um, wild quolls from eating toads, and hopefully we'll prevent quolls mm. from going extinct in that it's region. very clever. Here I was thinking that uh, they just love cane toad meat, so we've got to give them different cane toad meat. But it's a way for them to learn that cane toads equal sickness before it kills them, correct? That's right, yeah. yeah. So basically we're trying to educate quolls about toads before the toads arrive. And that gives us a little window, buys us some time. Um, so hopefully the quolls will mm. be equipped to deal with toads when they invade. How far off is that? Well, unfortunately, um, cane toads are just incredible dispersers and they're currently invading the Kimberley. And they're only 30 kilometres from Mornington Wildlife Sanctuary, which is in the central Kimberley. It's run by the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And one of my students, Naomi Walters, is currently deploying toad sausages in that region in an attempt to train wild quolls not to eat toads before they get there. And she's got only a couple of months to do that because Mm. we know that toads can travel 60 kilometres in a wet season. So they're only 30 k's away. High chance they're going to invade before the end of this year. But how do we stop the cane toads themselves? Is there there are no natural predators, correct? I, I think I read somewhere that cows flip them over and then eat the stomachs. But are there any animals that hunt them? That's a, that's an interesting question. Certainly, mm. crows have learnt to flip them over and and, and eat the um, non toxic parts. Mm. The other animal that's really um, learnt very quickly to deal with toads are raptors. So, uh, whistling kites and black kites will patrol the roadsides in the morning and they'll actually pick off the dead toads from the road. Are you kidding? <laughs> and they'll then eat, they'll then eat the um, non, non-toxic uh, legs and, yeah. and, and insides and so on. We have a couple of snake predators that can deal with cane toads, the keelback snake and the slaty grey snake. But, you know, given the choice between a nice frog and a cane toad, they'll choose the frog every time. Toads are a very hard animal to um, control because they cover a couple of square million kilometres of Australia. Mm. So the only solution really for eradicating toads is in the semi-arid zone. So what we've discovered is that toads in the semi-arid regions where no rain falls for six months, the toads have to rehydrate every 48 hours. They've got to hop into water, reabsorb water, um, so they can survive. So one solution for keeping them out of Uh, semi-arid regions is simply to replace open dams with closed tanks. 
you could keep toads from invading the Pilbara just by replacing 100 dams with water tanks along a narrow stretch of desert mm. where the toads have to travel to get from the Kimberley to the Pilbara. Kind of like a fire break, a fire line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's almost like putting a fire break in mm. and all it involves is replacing open dams with water tanks. And this would actually save uh, farmers money in the long run because there'd be no evaporation. Um, dams mm. in the Pilbara evaporate at a very rapid rate because it's just so hot. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but let's finish on a little bit of uh, qual talk. Have, have you worked with them in the field much? Um, yeah. Look, we're, we're currently involved in a project where we're reintroducing toad smart quals to okay. Kakadu. So yeah. um, I'm lucky enough to get to work in Kakadu <laughs> yeah, yeah. a couple of times a year. <laughs> and it's just a magical place to to work, especially if you're a biologist. Uh, are there some sort of uh, funny habits that quolls have? That you, any interesting quoll stories you have for me? My most memorable um, story was the first time I camped in Kakadu mm-hmm. with my wife. You know, we, we'd, we'd gone to sleep and, and we heard this rustling noise in the undergrowth outside the tent. And then there was a crash and a bang and we went outside and there's this cheeky quoll that has raided our esky, <laughs> somehow managed to get the lid off, mm. sitting there eating the chicken that we had in our esky. <laughs> and, you know, we went outside and he was not fussed at all. He didn't yeah. run away. He just looked at us and said, well, you're not getting your chicken back. Yeah, they must be pretty clever to get the lid off the esky. Jonathan Webb, Senior Lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Liebeter. See you next week.